Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the Scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for June 14th through 20th, 2021. This is covering Doctrine and Covenants sections 64 through 66. And now, let's bring out the star of the show, the Scriptures. Wonderful. So good to have them here. Love it. And now let's consult the Scripture Medic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 14 minutes, 13 seconds. And what would that break down to daily? That would be 2 minutes, 2 seconds. Wonderful. Easy to do. Here are some time codes for our episode. You can either listen to the whole thing or just listen to the section that you're studying. And with that, let's jump into section 64. We're going to start this section by asking the question, who is Ezra Booth? Who is Ezra Booth? Well, from the Institute Manual, we get this summary. Ezra Booth had been a Methodist preacher before he joined the church in 1831. When the Lord commanded church leaders and others to go to Missouri in the summer of 1831, Ezra Booth and Isaac Morley, his missionary companion, were among those elders who were called by the Lord to walk to Missouri, preaching the word by the way. You might remember this when we studied Doctrine and Covenants, section 52. I do remember that. Ezra considered this to be unfair when he learned that the prophet Joseph Smith and other church leaders were traveling to Missouri by boat and stagecoach. Upon arriving in Missouri, several of the elders, including Ezra Booth, were disappointed with the appearance of the land and with the lack of converts in the frontier town of Independence. Ezra also felt that Joseph Smith did not behave as a prophet because he had a spirit of lightness and levity, a temper of mind easily irritated, and an habitual proneness to jesting and joking. Contrary to revelation that had been given the elders, Ezra Booth and Isaac Morley returned quickly to Ohio by boat and stagecoach rather than preaching the gospel along the way. After arriving in Ohio, Ezra Booth came out in opposition to the prophet Joseph Smith and the church. Church leaders took action against Ezra Booth on September 6, 1831, and revoked his authority to preach the gospel. Shortly thereafter, Ezra began writing a series of letters critical of the prophet and the church that were published in the Ohio Star newspaper. Also during this time, in response to the Lord's command, several brethren in Ohio were preparing to move to Missouri. On September 11, 1831, Joseph Smith received the revelation recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 64. The next day, the prophet and his family moved from Kirtland to Hiram, Ohio. Now, you might remember that Joseph and his family were moving because they'd received a revelation in DNC 63 in our last lesson to dispose of the Isaac Morley farm on which they had been living. Ezra Booth authored nine letters renouncing the church originally published in Ohio Star and later published in Eber D. Howe's 1834, Mormonism Unveiled. Well, that must have been a very popular set of letters for those who wanted to find criticism with the church. Isn't it interesting that part of the problem seems to be Ezra Booth had a particular expectation? Mm -hmm. He expected independence to be different than it was. He expected there to be more converts. He expected the prophet to act in a particular way. Just because his expectations were a certain way doesn't mean that they were right. 
I'm going to paraphrase a line from the first season of The Chosen, a line from Nicodemus, talking to one of his Pharisee friends saying, you need to release God from the box you've put him in. Yeah, yeah, and his servants from the box we've put them in. As we jump into Doctrine and Covenants section 64, look for how the Lord teaches us to respond when others have hurt us, when others have offended us. Let's start in verse 3. There are those among you who have sinned, but verily I say, for this once, for mine own glory and for the salvation of souls, I have forgiven you your sins. I will be merciful unto you, for I have given unto you the kingdom, and the keys of the mysteries of the kingdom shall not be taken from my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., through the means I have appointed while he liveth, inasmuch as he obeyeth mine ordinances. There are those who have sought occasion, meaning to find fault, against him, without cause. Nevertheless, he has sinned. But verily I say unto you, I the Lord forgive sins unto those who confess their sins before me, and ask forgiveness, who have not sinned unto death. My disciples in days of old sought occasion against one another, and forgave not one another in their hearts. And for this evil they were afflicted and sorely chastened. Now, John mentioned the show The Chosen before. Some of you have seen it in season two. Notice how much time they spent in these first few episodes on just that issue. His disciples in days of old sought occasion one against another. I think it's such a great example of the Christian body. We're supposed to be perfectly unified around the Savior. And yet here we are, people of all sorts of different backgrounds and all sorts of different abilities, trying to navigate these relationships and learn to love like the Savior does. Notice too in here that it makes it clear that if we do not forgive, then the hurt is going to be upon us. It's a deficit for us. There's an instance that I would just share as a quick anecdote. There was a woman who came up to me when we were in a branch. Now, a branch, mind you, so you know, there's there's not tons of us there. She came up to me while I was in the library at the church, and she said, Brother Fulmer, I forgive you. And I said, that's wonderful. Thank you. Now, what is it that I did? And I honestly was very curious, and she told me that my sin was that she likes to be called by her first name, not sister so-and-so, and that I didn't do that. And this must have gone on for maybe a year, and she had really harbored resentment against me because of it. But that offense didn't bother me. I mean, there was no deficit for me except that we could have been friends. So I think it's a good point to remember how much damage it can do to us to not forgive. I think that's one reason why the Savior indicates that it's so important and will continue as we go on in verse 9. Wherefore I say unto you that ye ought to forgive one another. For he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord. For there remaineth in him the greater sin. I the Lord will forgive whom I will forgive. But of you... It is required to forgive all men. And ye ought to say in your hearts, Let God judge between me and thee, and reward thee according to thy deeds. 
from the Institute Manual, there's a reinforcement there from then-President Dieter F. Uchtdorf. This comes from the April 2007 General Conference. He tells us, quote, Extending forgiveness is a precondition to receiving forgiveness. For our own good, we need the moral courage to forgive and to ask for forgiveness. Never is the soul nobler and more courageous than when we forgive. This includes forgiving ourselves. Each of us is under a divinely spoken obligation to reach out with pardon and mercy and to forgive one another. There is a great need for this Christ-like attribute in our families, in our marriages, in our wards, in stakes, in our communities, and in our nations. We will receive the joy of forgiveness in our own lives when we are willing to extend that joy freely to others. Lip service is not enough. We need to purge our hearts and minds of feelings and thoughts of bitterness and let the light and the love of Christ enter in. As a result, the Spirit of the Lord will fill our souls with the joy accompanying divine peace of conscience. End quote. You know, to remember how important that is, as we were talking about this, reading these words from living prophets, I wonder if you'd thought in your mind either about someone you need to forgive someone who has forgiven you and what that feels like, or someone that you have forgiven and what that feels like. We know it's important. We know it's hard, but we know it heals the soul. In verses 12 through 14, the Lord taught that our choice to forgive others does not relieve them of responsibility for their actions. They're still accountable to the Lord for the wrongs that they've done. I think that's an important distinction, though because they are not necessarily accountable to us. They are accountable to the Lord. Right. Now we have a couple of rebukes. Starting in verse 15, Behold, I, the Lord, was angry with him who was my servant Ezra Booth, and also my servant Isaac Morley, for they kept not the law, neither the commandment. They sought evil in their hearts, and I, the Lord, withheld my spirit. They condemned for evil that thing in which there was no evil. Nevertheless, I have forgiven my servant Isaac Morley. So that kind of implies that Ezra is not forgiven, (laughs) and given his behavior from this point on, that's not too surprising, I guess. Verse 17 is another rebuke for Edward Partridge. And also my servant Edward Partridge, behold, he hath sinned, And Satan seeketh to destroy his soul. But when these things are made known unto them, and they repent of the evil, they shall be forgiven. So there's that promise. Wonderful. And of course, as we've talked about Edward Partridge in the past, as we will talk about him as a bishop in the church going forward, we see the measure of that man and how he receives the chastisement of the Lord. It's very inspiring. He really is remarkable. Yeah, he's one of my favorite. Indeed. Let's take a look in verse 20. We've got some more counsel. And again, I say unto you that my servant Isaac Morley may not be tempted above that which he is able to bear and counsel wrongfully to your hurt. I gave commandment that his farm should be sold. I will not that my servant Frederick G. Williams should sell his farm, for I, the Lord, will to retain a stronghold in the land of Kirtland for the space of five years, in the which 
I will not overthrow the wicked, that thereby I may save some. Now, the seminary manual gives us a good summary of these two men, Isaac Morley and Frederick G. Williams, and what happened after this revelation. Isaac Morley followed the Lord's commandment to sell his farm. He was one of the first saints to settle in Independence, Missouri, where he sought to establish Zion. He served the Lord faithfully throughout his life. Although Frederick G. Williams was not asked to sell his farm, he still demonstrated a willingness to sacrifice. He told Joseph Smith that his farm could be used to house and feed church members in need. Later, Frederick consecrated his entire farm to the church without receiving any payment in return. Through the sacrifices of Frederick G. Williams and other faithful saints in Ohio, the Lord retained, what he said in verse 21, a stronghold in the land of Kirtland for the space of five years. During these years, the saints built the Kirtland Temple, which was a source of great blessings to the saints, including Brother Williams. So here we have examples of what God required of these faithful men. What does he require of us? Take a look in verse 22. And after that day, I, the Lord, will not hold any guilty that shall go with an open heart up to the land of Zion, for I, the Lord, require the hearts of the children of men. Now, notice the use of today and tomorrow in these verses relating to Christ's second coming, starting in verse 23. Behold, now it is called today until the coming of the Son of Man. So right away at the beginning, today is what happens before Christ comes. I know that sounds kind of weird because we're used to thinking of today and tomorrow in very literal terms, but God is using these words in very specific ways right here. Going on. And verily... It is a day of sacrifice, speaking of the days before Christ comes, and a day for the tithing of my people. For he that is tithed shall not be burned at his coming. For after today cometh the burning. This is speaking after the manner of the Lord. For verily I say, tomorrow all the proud and they that do wickedly shall be as stubble, and I will burn them up. For I am the Lord of hosts, and I will not spare any that remain in Babylon. Wherefore, if ye believe me, ye will labor while it is called today. So, if someone asks you if you know when the Lord's coming, you can refer to these scriptures. We do know he's coming tomorrow. That's right. Because every day prior to his coming is today. And that's the day that we should be laboring. That's the day for sacrifice, for the tithing of his people. Because tomorrow, that's when the proud will become his stubble and the Lord will come. So let's labor today. From the Institute Manual, we get a reinforcement of that idea from President Henry B. Eyring. This comes from the April 2000 General Conference again. He says, quote, The scriptures make the danger of delay clear. It is that we may discover that we have run out of time. The God who gives us each day as a treasure will require an accounting. We will weep and he will weep if we have intended to repent and to serve him in tomorrows which never came or have dreamt of yesterdays where the opportunity to act was past. This day is a precious gift of God. The thought, someday I will, 
can be a thief of the opportunities of time and the blessings of eternity. It is hard to know when we have done enough for the atonement to change our natures and so qualify us for eternal life. And we don't know how many days we will have to give the service necessary for that mighty change to come. But we know that we will have days enough if only we don't waste them. For those who are discouraged by their circumstances and are therefore tempted to feel they cannot serve the Lord this day, I make you two promises. Hard as things seem today, they will be better in the next day if you choose to serve the Lord this day with your whole heart. The other promise I make you is that by choosing to serve Him this day, you will feel His love and grow to love Him more. End quote. So good. I love it whenever there's a promise associated with a commandment or encouragement. Yeah. Let's take a look in verses 26 through 30. These verses contain the Lord's command to Newell K. Whitney and Sidney Gilbert. He commanded them to use their store in Kirtland, Ohio, to help provide for the needs of the saints. This is one example of a way that some saints were asked to sacrifice and contribute to the building of Zion. In verse 33, the Lord says, Wherefore, be not weary in well-doing. For ye are laying the foundation of a great work, and out of small things proceedeth that which is great. And look in verse 34 for the way we are to serve. Verse 34, Behold, the Lord requireth the heart, and a willing mind, and the willing and obedient shall eat the good of the land of Zion in these last days. That phrase the heart and a willing mind. From the Institute Manual, we have a quote from Elder Donald L. Hallstrom of the Presidency of the Seventy at the time. This is coming from an Enzyme article in June 2011 called The Heart and a Willing Mind. It says, quote, If we love the Lord with all our heart, we are willing to give him everything we possess. Elder Neil A. Maxwell said, The submission of one's will is really the only uniquely personal thing we have to place on God's altar. The many other things we give to God are actually things he has already given us, and he has loaned them to us. But when we begin to submit ourselves by letting our wills be swallowed up in God's will, then we are really giving something to him. Having a willing mind connotes giving our best effort and finest thinking, and seeking God's wisdom. It suggests that our most devoted lifetime study should be of things that are eternal in nature. It means that there must be an inextricable relationship between hearing the word of God and obeying it. The Apostle James said, Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only. Some of us hear selectively, and do when it is convenient. But for those who give their heart and mind to the Lord, whether the burden is light or heavy makes no difference. We demonstrate a consecrated heart and mind by consistently following God's commandments, no matter how difficult the circumstances. Now, in these verses 41 through 43, this end of the revelation, our friend Anne, in a recent Sunday school class, pointed out the word shall. And I really noticed it here in these verses. Look for how it expresses surety 
and promise of future events. Right. Think about it. Instead of saying this could happen or it would be a good thing if this happened, it's a declaration that this will actually happen. Yeah. Let's take a look in verse 41. For behold, I say unto you that Zion shall flourish and the glory of the Lord shall be upon her and she shall be an ensign unto the people. And there shall come unto her out of every nation under heaven. And the day shall come when the nations of the earth shall tremble because of her and shall fear because of her terrible ones. The Lord hath spoken it. Amen. Now that is certainty. Yep. Once again, we're dealing with an omniscient being here that is telling us exactly what is going to come to pass. Yep. It's pretty amazing. Well, there we are. We've come to the end of the Book of Commandments. So uh, that, it's been a great year, well, and hey, we'll John, start the, next hey, year with the, the Old Testament, uh, I think. With, wait, uh, John, no. Is there uh, something wrong? <laughs> yes, well, we still have 74 more sections, John, and it's only... There's more sections? It's, it's only, yes, we haven't even hit half the year yet. Oh, see, the, the book of commandments. Go ahead and explain what you mean there. The book. Well, of see, the book of commandments. That was the first collection of these revelations. You might remember from early on in the year we talked about it. It was first attempted to be published in 1833, but it was never completed because of a mob destroying the press. But right, and that was all the revelations that were included in the book of commandments. It stopped at the revelation that we call today section 64. Can you imagine all of the things that we wouldn't have if we only had the Book of Commandments? Well, I guess it's worth paying attention to. From this point on, everything else was not included in that. And what a wonderful blessing for these revelations to be contained in what we have, the Doctrine and Covenants. So with that, let's jump into section 65. So this is the first section that's officially unique to the Doctrine and Covenants starting in 1835. From the Institute Manual, we get this summary. Joseph and Emma Smith were living on Isaac Morley's property when the Lord commanded Isaac to sell his farm, as we've been discussing. On September 12, 1831, the Prophet Joseph Smith moved his family to Hiram, Ohio, where many new church members lived to live with John and Alice, or Elsa Johnson, and their family. A church service was held at the Johnson home on Sunday, October 30th, 1831. On that same day, the prophet received the revelation that is recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 65. The prophet Joseph Smith had completed his inspired translation of the early chapters of Matthew more than six months before this revelation was received. William E. McClellan wrote, however, that this revelation referred in theme to Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, where the Lord prays, thy kingdom come. So let's look for that theme right away in verse 2. The keys of the kingdom of God are committed unto man on the earth, and from thence shall the gospel roll forth unto the ends of the earth. As the stone which is cut out of the mountain without hands shall roll forth, until it has filled the whole earth. Cut out of the mountain without hands. That sounds familiar to me. Well, what's interesting is, it should only sound familiar in one other context. As far as I can tell, that expression is only used two times. Daniel's reference that we'll talk about in just a minute, and right here. 
So this is referring to Daniel in the Old Testament, his interpretation of the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. The king sees this vision and Daniel explains it to him. He sees a statue with many different kinds of metals or minerals, and it represents the various kingdoms of the earth. But there's a stone cut out of the mountain without hands that rolls forth and destroys the statue representing the kingdoms of the earth. And here we see it referenced again, connected very clearly to the fact that it's the gospel that will roll forth, that will fill the whole earth. So as we're looking at these next verses, think about what evidence do you see that Daniel's prophecy is being fulfilled today? In what way is the kingdom of God like a stone cut out of the mountain without hands that will roll forth and fill the whole earth? Let's take a look at the admonitions there in verse 4. Pray unto the Lord. Call upon his holy name. Make known his wonderful works among the people. Call upon the Lord, that his kingdom may go forth upon the earth, that the inhabitants thereof may receive it, and be prepared for the days to come, in the which the Son of Man shall come down in heaven, clothed in the brightness of his glory, to meet the kingdom of God which is set up on the earth. Wherefore may the kingdom of God go forth, that the kingdom of heaven may come, that thou, O God, mayest be glorified in heaven, so on earth, that thine enemies may be subdued. For thine is the honor, power, and glory forever and ever. Amen. Beautiful. Now, there might be some confusion. There are two kingdoms mentioned in those verses, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Elder James E. Talmadge gave a clarification of these two kingdoms in his book, Jesus the Christ, highly recommended. It says, quote, The kingdom of God is the church established by divine authority upon the earth. This institution asserts no claim to temporal rule over nations. Its scepter of power is that of the holy priesthood, to be used in the preaching of the gospel and in administering its ordinances for the salvation of mankind, living and dead. The kingdom of heaven is the divinely ordained system of government and dominion in all matters, temporal and spiritual. This will be established on earth only when its rightful head, the King of Kings, Jesus the Christ, comes to reign. The kingdom of God has been established among men to prepare them for the kingdom of heaven, which shall come. And in the blessed reign of Christ the King shall the two be made one, end quote. Wonderful. Well put. Great. Let's take a look now at section 66. And let's ask the question, who is William E. McClellan? This information comes from Revelations in Context in your Gospel Library app. Within two months of his baptism on August 20th, 1831, William E. McClellan, a former school teacher, became deeply involved in the Restoration story. Following his conversion, McClellan was ordained an elder and preached the gospel with Hiram Smith for a few weeks before traveling to Orange, Ohio in late October for a general conference of the church. McClellan noted in his journal that it was at this conference that he first saw Brother Joseph the Seer, also brothers Oliver Cowdery, John Whitmer, and Sidney Rigdon, and a great many other elders. 
At the conference, McClellan was ordained a high priest and heard Joseph teach about the powers and duties of that office. This conference was attended by me with much spiritual edification and comfort to my heart, he declared. After the conference, McClellan traveled to Kirtland and, in the course of his journey, stepped off a large log and strained my ankle very badly, so much so that he petitioned Joseph to heal him. He laid his hands on the ankle, McClellan wrote in his journal, and it was healed, although it was swelled much and had pained me severely. Just a few days later, McClellan decided to test Joseph Smith's calling. After going to Joseph's home in Hiram, Ohio, on October 29th, McClellan went before the Lord in secret and on my knees asked him to reveal the answer to five questions through his prophet. Without letting Joseph know what these five questions were, McClellan asked Joseph to provide to him God's will. The resulting revelation, now known as Doctrine and Covenant 66, answered McClellan's five questions to his full and entire satisfaction. Even after he later fell away from the church, McClellan stated that he still considered this revelation an evidence of Joseph's prophetic calling, which he said, I cannot refute. That really is remarkable. It's one thing to join the church and fall away from it, but even though he had fallen away from it, he still recognized this for Mm -hmm. what it was. Well, so are you curious? I am. Let's take a look. Let's take a look at verse 1. Behold, thus saith the Lord unto my servant William E. McClellan, Blessed are you, inasmuch as you have turned away from your iniquities and have received my truths. Saith the Lord your Redeemer, the Savior of the world, even as many as believe on my name. Verily I say unto you, Blessed are you for receiving mine everlasting covenant, even the fullness of my gospel sent forth unto the children of men, that they might have life and be made partakers of the glories which are to be revealed in the last days, as it was written by the prophets and apostles in days of old. Verily I say unto you, my servant William, that you are clean, but not all. Repent, therefore, of those things which are not pleasing in my sight, saith the Lord, for the Lord will show them unto you. Now, there's an interesting phrase there. First of all, it's very powerful that William is being called out directly, saying that he is doing well, but he still needs to clean up some things, and that the Lord will show him what he needs to clean up. There was an extremely memorable talk from October 2015 General Conference. This is from Elder Larry R. Lawrence of the Seventy. The talk was called, What Lack I Yet? Some of you may remember that. I love that talk. And if you haven't, you might want to read that. And even if you do remember it, maybe you should read it again anyway. I've used the counsel from that talk a lot. Yep. So he says this, quote, The journey of discipleship is not an easy one. It has been called a course of steady improvement. As we travel along that straight and narrow path, the Spirit continually challenges us to be better and to climb higher. The Holy Ghost makes an ideal traveling companion. If we are humble and teachable, he will take us by the hand and lead us home. However, we need to ask the Lord for directions along the way. We have to ask some difficult questions like, What do I need to change? How can I improve? What weakness 
needs strengthening. The Holy Ghost doesn't tell us to improve everything at once. If he did, we would become discouraged and give up. The Spirit works with us at our own speed, one step at a time, or as the Lord has taught, line upon line, precept upon precept. And blessed are those who hearken unto my precepts, for unto him that receiveth I will give more. For example, if the Holy Ghost has been prompting you to say thank you more often, and you respond to that prompting, then he may feel it's time for you to move on to something more challenging, like learning to say, I'm sorry, that was my fault. A perfect time to ask, what lack I yet, is when we take the sacrament. The Apostle Paul taught that this is a time for each of us to examine ourselves. In this reverent atmosphere, as our thoughts are turned heavenward, the Lord can gently tell us what we need to work on next. End quote. Yeah, that's so true. And don't be scared to ask that question. It's been my experience, and he gives many examples in his talk, that the Lord will give us something that we can do and build us up and help us step by step. But it's a great, great question to ask. And you know, it's interesting. I also got out of that talk segment the notion of we're not going to move on to the next thing until you address what I prompted you to do. Something that my wife has talked about frequently, as many of you know from listening to the show, that she's a violin instructor. And she has talked many times about students who have come to lessons basically to repeat the previous lesson because they did not practice, they did not work on what they were asked to work on. So we're going to work on that again. Well, because you can't move forward. Right. Yep, as it is with us. So keep that as part of the things to ask in your prayer. And it's been great advice for me to share with others who don't know or are worried about that they're not good enough and they don't know what to do. What a wonderful question to ask the Lord. And it's the safest possible source you could ask. Right. The person who wants the most for you above anyone else. And knows you the best. Yep. So speaking of that, especially the idea of knowing us the best, William E. McClellan is given instructions in verses 5 through 8 that he's to go on a mission. Verse 5, he's to proclaim my gospel from land to land. In verse 6, he's told to not stay in Ohio, but don't yet go to Zion. And that to send whatever money can be sent for Zion. And to think not of his property. That's all in verse 6. In verse 7, he's to go unto the eastern lands. And Samuel H. Smith is to be his companion in verse 8. Wow, couldn't ask for a better companion. No, that sounds wonderful. Most experienced missionary in the church. That's right. Let's read verses 9 to the end. In verse 9, Lay your hands upon the sick, and they shall recover. Return not till I, the Lord, shall send you. Be patient in affliction. Ask, and ye shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Seek not to be cumbered. Forsake all unrighteousness. Commit not adultery, a temptation with which thou hast been troubled. First of all, to have that recorded in Scripture. Yeah, that had to have been uncomfortable. Yeah, but as uncomfortable as that is, what does this verse teach us about how the Lord knows our particular 
challenges and temptations. Well, and to the whole point here, this is William McClellan's little test, you know, so in a way he asked for this. He asked for it. That's true. Going on in verse 11, keep these sayings for they are true and faithful and thou shalt magnify thine office and push many people to Zion with songs of everlasting joy upon their heads. Continue in these things even unto the end, and you shall have a crown of eternal life at the right hand of my Father, who is full of grace and truth. Verily, thus saith the Lord your God, your Redeemer, even Jesus Christ. Amen. Very powerful revelation. Now, it's interesting. It may not have been obvious, reading through the section, what were William's five questions? Well, the answer is we don't actually know. He never really talked about them. We just know that according to William, all of his questions were answered to his full satisfaction. Yeah. From the Institute Manual, we have kind of a summary of what happened next. It says... William and Samuel left Hiram, Ohio a few weeks after receiving their call and traveled throughout eastern Ohio preaching the gospel. William recorded in his journal instances of miraculous healings through the laying on of hands in fulfillment of the Lord's promise to him. Despite some success, the two missionaries experienced much opposition while preaching the gospel. As winter set in, William became sick and decided in late December to return. In so doing, William ignored the Lord's instructions to be patient in affliction and to return not from his mission until the Lord called him back. The Lord also counseled William to seek not to be cumbered and forsake all unrighteousness. To be cumbered means to be hindered or weighed down by something that prevents you from progressing. The ensuing command to forsake all unrighteousness reminds us that sin is the primary obstacle that cumbers our spiritual progression. The Lord specifically warned William to be on guard against sexual immorality, a temptation that he had apparently struggled with. The Lord promised William that if he obeyed his counsel and continued faithful unto the end, he would be crowned with eternal life. William served the Lord faithfully for a time, And in 1835, he was called to serve as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Sadly, William did not heed the Lord's counsel to continue faithful to the end, and later apostatized and turned against the prophet Joseph Smith. When he was excommunicated from the church in May 1838, he admitted that he had quit praying and keeping the commandments and indulged himself in his lustful desires. Well, that's... I was going to say it's sad, but it's a good lesson for us as well. I think all of us can relate to the concept of not always being faithful. Yeah, and to the power that comes from even doing those little things, praying, keeping the commandments, having self-control. So as we wrap up our lesson today, what did you learn from the instruction to these amazing people in early church history? Great counsel was given. And we see evidences both of people that stayed faithful and the blessings that they received and those that did not. What will we take with us? And I learned that there were more revelations after the Book of Commandments. Yeah, you knew that already. I did. Yeah, but hey, I learned that the Book of Commandments ended after 64, so that was interesting. 
Well, we'll look forward to talking to you about more revelations, a lot more, yes. in our next lesson. I'll look forward to seeing you all then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. <laughs>